Welcome to UCI Law Talks from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join us on Twitter at UCI Law. Welcome to UCI Law Podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Lee. I'm a professor and associate dean at the law school, and I write and teach in the area of immigration law. This week, we will be discussing Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California, more commonly known as the DACA rescission case. I had a really good conversation with two people. Uh, one is Monica Almadani, who was a part of the litigation team in one of the lawsuits challenging the rescission. Uh, she's now a visiting clinical professor here at the law school. And the other person I chatted with was Viridiana Chaboya, who was one of the named plaintiffs in the case. She was a UCI student at the time and has recently graduated from the law school. Now, we'll get to the conversation in a moment, but I just wanted to set the table so that anyone who hasn't been following the case can keep up with the conversation. As you might know or recall, in June 2012, President Obama announced that the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, was going to create the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, commonly known as DACA. This program would give unauthorized migrants who came to the United States as children a temporary reprieve against deportation. These reprieves were good for and renewable after two years, and it also gave them some important benefits like work authorization. Of course, Trump, uh, President Trump was elected in 2016, and he campaigned on the promise to take a harsher approach to immigration law. In September 2017, the acting secretary of DHS, Elaine Duke, issued a memo announcing that DHS was going to rescind the DACA program. Now, their primary reason for doing so was the belief that DACA was unlawful. Several lawsuits were filed almost immediately to challenge this rescission. There are some twists and turns in this case, uh, and especially in the government's response. Uh, over time, in addition to their belief that DACA was unlawful, uh, the government uh, also explained after the fact that it believed that the rescission um, was defenseful, uh, not only because it was unlawful, but again, because it was simply bad policy. Okay, so as the case made its way up through the courts, the primary question was whether the government had offered a good enough reason for rescinding uh, the program. Uh, the case was eventually argued before the Supreme Court on November 12th, 2019. And on June 18th, 2020, the court issued its decision. In a surprising 5-4 opinion written by the Chief Justice John Roberts, the court held that the rescission was, quote, arbitrary and capricious in violation of the Administrative Procedure Act. Now, the court didn't say that the administration could never rescind DACA. Rather, it said that if the administration was going to do this, it had to offer up better reasons than it did. Moreover, eight of the nine justices also agreed that the plaintiffs in the case had not pled enough facts to support a claim that the rescission was motivated by racial animus. Only Justice Sotomayor would have allowed the plaintiffs to proceed in the case on that claim. God bless Justice Sotomayor. I have to say, I was genuinely surprised by this decision. When I reviewed the transcript of the oral argument, I really didn't see how the plaintiffs were going to secure five votes to save DACA, but they did it. Okay, uh, there's more I could say, but that should be enough even for casual or part-time students of the law to keep up with the conversation. Um, here's the conversation I had with Professor Almadani and Viridiana Chaboya. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello. Thank you for taking the time to, to join me today. Let's, let's talk about the uh, DACA rescission case. I just, 
I just want to ask, how excited were you guys when you guys read the opinion? Uh, Monica, you want to start with you? Sure. I was thrilled, obviously. I think many of us were, uh, or most of us were surprised by, by the decision. I think folks were expecting a very negative decision. And so it was um, incredibly exciting to get such great news that morning, especially given how many lives um, were hanging in the balance. And um, for this decision to come down during such a difficult time generally um, with the pandemic and everything that's going on nationally, um, it was just such a great relief um, for, for everyone, I think, who's been involved and especially, obviously, um, for the DACA recipients and their families and communities in particular. Yeah. Viri, what about you? I was very excited. I was, um, I was still asleep when Professor Rosenbaum called me uh, like at 730 in the morning and he, I, I didn't pick up because I thought he's calling me to say I'm sorry or um, explain next steps um, for a bad decision. And I didn't answer. Then I like Googled quickly DACA decision and saw that it was positive and called him back. And I think just started processing what this meant um yeah i i think i was expecting the worst so it was it was definitely a big relief yeah i, I you know and i'm not even a i'm not a supreme court watchdog at all although i know a lot of my colleagues are but i just knew that this particular term around june i would just begin checking the uh supreme court website and i'm actually i'm i, I don't even want to say it. i'll start checking twitter <laughs> on mondays and thursdays and I remember getting up and about like six thirty and just seeing DACA see it's like trending and I just immediately jumped out of bed and had to start going through the opinion. I, I I mean it was sort of what you said, Monica. It was like so dark the last couple of months. And just to have this one little bit of light was such a such a pleasant surprise. Um so then what I, I you know, you guys I think had a chance to read the opinion or at least go through it. Um, you know, Viridian, I know you're doing things like studying for the bar, but um, if you had a chance to read it, like what, what surprised you the most about that opinion? I will say that I instinctively tried to look for um, some, some sort of mention around the Equal Protection Clause claims because I thought those were um, an acknowledgement of the, the reason and the, like the hostility that this administration seems to have um, for immigrants. Um, and I was instantly drawn, of course, to Sotomayor's dissent, which just um, had me so happy that somebody saw through a lot of what's being done at the at the executive level. Um, but it was it was interesting to see because I think being in law school and and having some understanding of the language in it um, made me realize the 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 good and the bad of the decision. The the, the parts where I feel like it failed to see um, DACA recipients as as people who are being discriminated against, as, as a group of people um, beyond like an administrative process flaw or something. I mean, I gotta say, it's pretty clear that Justice Sotomayor is on an island by herself when it comes to equal protection. I was, I was dumbfounded by that. I, I didn't quite understand why the rest of the liberal wing didn't join the uh, concurrence. I don't, it made me think, I wonder if there is just some sort of fear that maybe they would lose that kind of fragile five justice coalition. But it, it was just so odd. I mean, even from the language, the fact that 
uh, you know, the majority opinion referred to DACA recipients as aliens. And, uh, you know, by contrast, Justice Sotomayor for a number of years now has been uh, really uh, deliberate about using the term undocumented immigrant. And then second, we're just at the beginning stages of litigation. All she said is that there's enough that's been alleged to assert a plausible claim of discrimination because the year is 2020 and President Trump is here uh, overseeing uh, you know, the DHS. So it, I just felt like Justice Sotomayor is the only one who's walking through the world with us. It just felt so bizarre to read that one opinion. Um, Monica, what about you? What, what surprised you the most? So I agree with that. Um, I was very surprised about how the court handled the equal protection claim and was really um, you know, excited to read Justice Sotomayor's concurrence because as Beatty said, she's the only one, and as you said, Stephen, who seems to be um, living in our reality and understands what this administration has done and what the president himself has said about um, Latinos in particular, about immigrants as well. And so um, that was very disheartening to see that the court did not even give um, the respondents in the case the opportunity to really uh, explore that claim, to um, seek discovery in the case, to develop the claim um, on remand. The other thing that surprised me um, was the court's legal reasoning and specifically that it didn't rule on the legality of DACA itself. I think that everyone who's been involved in the case and following closely has always um, you know, had to grapple with this question of whether the DACA program itself, um, when it was initiated, was initiated lawfully or not. Um, and then whether the rescission itself obviously was legal or not. But it just, um, I think it was surprising to a lot of um, the lawyers involved in the case um, and that, that they, the court did not directly address um, the, you know, the ultimate sort of legality of the deferred action program. Um, it's, I mean, I think it's, it's good in many ways that it didn't do that. Um, and it's positive that it issued um, a more narrow decision that leads that question, I think, to another day. Um, and obviously the dissent grappled with it, but um, that surprised me. Okay, I, I actually do want to talk about what the precise holding of the case was. I think this is important for the public to understand. Uh, but I'm going to bracket it just for a second because I, I'm realizing that the public may not be aware of uh, the precise relationship that each of you has uh, to this litigation. I think, uh, you know, I just feel really lucky to be talking to both you guys because you guys have had your own sort of uh, imprint on this litigation. So maybe if you could just, you know, Viri, we could start with you. Maybe you could just say a little bit about what your personal relationship to this case is. Uh, I think it would really help our listeners, um, you know, understand your perspective. Yeah, so I was one of the plaintiffs in Garcia v. Trump. Um, I'm just graduated law school, so I uh, knew Professor Rosenbaum, Mark Rosenbaum, one of the attorneys on the case uh, through my previous work before law school. And he, he knew that I was a DACA recipient and that I was struggling at the very beginning of law school with the recession and the, the fact that I, I didn't know whether I would be able to put my JD into practice in a few years. Um, so he asked me to join the case, and uh, I'm, I'm very glad I did. I'm very happy um, with the process, even though there's been a lot of moments of, of pain and a lot of moments of um, defeat. But, yeah, very, very happy to be part of it. And I'm also just going to say that I'm, I'm really happy that you persisted as well, because I've had the, the good fortune of having had you in class as a student and also uh, as my uh, RA for the last year. So that... 
um, for all those reasons, I'm personally excited that you were able to, to navigate this litigation successfully. Uh, Monica, how about you? What is your relationship to the litigation? Sure. So back in 2017, um, when Trump rescinded DACA and the litigation, um, the various cases um, challenging that decision began, I was a, um, a special counsel at Covington and Burling, the law firm that um, represented the UC, the University of California, in, um, in, in their case. And so I was part of the senior litigation team litigating um, what was at the time, you know, it was the first case filed against the Trump administration to challenge the rescission decision. Um, and in particular, um, I presented a tutorial along with Luis Cortez, who's a DACA recipient and an attorney, an immigration law tutorial for Judge Alsup in the Northern District of California regarding the history of deferred action um, and tried to explain how the DACA program fit into this larger deferred action um, scheme, um, essentially, or, or how, you know, explaining how this works in the broader context of immigration law. So that's been, um, that was my direct involvement in the case. And at the start of litigation, did you have a sense of how things might turn out? In other words, like, did you anticipate that uh, ultimately the plaintiffs would win before the Supreme Court? Um, <laughs> I've always been a very optimistic litigator. <laughs> um, I think many, many of my friends um, and colleagues think I'm, um, you know, a little bit naive about how I approach um, litigation, but I, um, I'm always very optimistic and I've spent most of my career working in immigrants' rights. Um, and so I feel like if you're on the side of justice then somehow you're going to find a way to convince um, you know, the decision makers that they need to do the right and humane thing. But, you know, having said that, um, of course, from the very beginning, we knew this was an incredibly difficult case. It was difficult to even identify the claims we would raise. Um, and so it took um, considerable amount of time to really think through the best um, legal strategy. And it evolved over time, as it usually does when you're litigating. Um, so I think that's why I found the, the decision, the Supreme Court's decision, um, a little bit surprising, um, the way in which um, the court addressed the, the legality of DACA itself because of the various ways in which we had interpreted um, that original decision from the Obama administration. Oh, okay, so let, let's talk about that. So let, let's get to the holding of the case. So as, as we talked about earlier, the majority opinion did not address the legality of DACA, and, and that's in part because of the, the posture of the case. I mean, it wasn't... Um, a challenge to DACA itself, although there seems to be litigation going on right now with the states trying to sue and challenge DACA. Rather, administration tried to rescind DACA. Uh, various plaintiffs, like Viri and others, tried to challenge the rescission. And then the administration responded by saying, well, look, we have to rescind it because it's illegal. So the sort of legality of DACA came into the litigation through the back door. It wasn't the legality of DACA, but it was the executive's belief in the legality of DACA. So I guess I'm just wondering, did you guys debate uh, whether and to what extent you wanted to put the legality of the program front and center? In other words, like, on the one hand, it would be great to have like a final decision on the legality of this given um, the stakes of the case. On the other hand, there's no real guarantee of anything with this particular court answering that type of question. Yeah, that's a good question. and. I just want to recognize that obviously there were many different lawsuits 
um, and, you know, different cases challenging um, the, the rescission decision. And so I was involved in, in only one, right? And for example, the Garcia case, Beatty's case, and our case, um, along with others, were consolidated before the Northern District, but there were cases in New York and D.C. and Maryland, et cetera. So um, in terms of, you know, my involvement, I would say that, I, and, and I think, I, I guess I could say this, um, or I think I'll speak for, I think, all the respondents, but it never, um, I don't think the strategy was ever to put forth the legality of stock or to stand on that and say, okay, this program is legal and that's why the rescission is unlawful. Um, but I think the expectation was always that the government would argue that the program um, was unlawful. And so that was just something we had to prepare for um, and, and have arguments explaining why the, the memo itself, the 2012 memo um, and the program it created um, was a lawful exercise of prosecutorial discretion. At least that's the way um, we approached it. Yeah, what's interesting about that, too, is if you look at, at least during the Obama administration, the kind of legality of that program um, was almost self-evident to Obama officials. You know, I think that in my own sort of research, that seemed to be true with the political officials, but then also even in public statements. I think that, uh, you know, um, then Secretary Napolitano, once she had left DHS, she was giving a speech and she talked about how, from their vantage point, uh, there's such a long line of cases that made non-enforcement su subject to um, uh, executive uh, discretion and not really subject to judicial review, um, if any. So um, it was almost like they just didn't give too much thought to it. I mean, I always wondered why they didn't go and take a kind of a more deliberate approach, like using those and comment to try and give it more insulation, um, more of like a legal grounding. But I don't know, it just seemed like it was so obvious to from their perspective that they just didn't even want to pursue it. So yeah. it was it was interesting to see this case kind of evolve over the last couple of years. I never really thought that this kind of issue would have made it to the Supreme Court and then turn out the way it did. Um, you know, Viri, I, I, want, I want to talk to you a little bit about um, this kind of, you know, these sort of two uh, parts of Roberts's uh, holding. So the one was, uh, you know, equal protection, there's not enough let pled here to assert a plausible claim of um, racial animus. And then the other one is sort of arbitrary capricious. That is, you know, the Trump administration uh, or the DHS rather uh, did not, um, you know, uh, thoroughly provide an adequate reason for rescinding this. So um, just from your perspective, it's a victory, but how does that kind of victory translate to you? Like, in other words, like, you know, how, how does this legal outcome map on to your own sort of journey? Does it does it feel like uh, a satisfactory one? Do you feel a little bit deflated? I mean, from your vantage point, could you share a little bit about that? Um, it does feel a little bit um, deflating. It's It feels like so much of it was... It, actually, I remember telling a friend that morning that I was really grateful for the administration's ineptitude that morning, um, <laughs> and their inability to do things right. Um, because it was, it, it does seem like so much of it was focused on a procedural issue, on the fact that they didn't do things the right way, they didn't rescind it the right way. Um, and I, I, I think I'm the opposite of Monica in a way that I'm, I'm sort of a pessimist when it comes to litigation. I think so much because I want to prepare myself for the worst, but this, this opinion in particular, Roberts, 
just it made me think that future claims, future arguments that immigrants or Latinos may be discriminated discriminated against in immigration in particular would be excused. Like it would be, um, I think there's a line somewhere in the opinion in Roberts where he says um, that if this equal protection claim were to go forward here, then it would be used in the future for other immigration um, cases or other immigration decisions by the executive. And I mean, I think that should be possible. I think that if an administration is doing something discriminatory, discriminatory, even in an area where they seem to have so much control, like immigration, like then we should be able to call it out in the judicial system. And it felt like he was foreclosing that a little bit um, for Latinos and immigration in particular, which felt really disheartening. That's a really important point because when I read the opinion, I, I, I agree, agree with your sense that this was not so much about DACA as it was about the Trump administration. I mean, in other words, like Roberts really like, you almost got the sense that he was indifferent to DACA or maybe he could get himself worked up to feel um, you know, some degree of sympathy for DACA recipients. I mean, you know, what monster would not feel that kind of sympathy? But, you know, reading it, you just felt like, you know, the Trump administration either is motivated by, uh, you know, racial animus or they're just really bad at um, administering laws. They're just really bad at, um, you know, going through proper procedures, following rules. And that's what arbitrary capricious is ultimately about, right? It's about ensuring that people do their jobs to a certain degree of uh, minimal competence. And it's almost like, uh, what was it, the census case, where it's like, you know, you can do this horrible, awful thing, but just you got to be, uh, you know, pretextual about it. You have to submerge it under a veneer of kind of legitimate um, uh, governance. And that's the sense I got with it. Uh, you know, like, I guess it kind of leads to the next question. It's like, so what now? I mean, so we have this kind of victory. We have the Trump administration getting rejected. Uh, in its attempt to rescind DACA, um, what happens next? Do we just expect the rescission to go forward again, except under a different label? Um, Monica, what do you think? You know, I think we really don't know what's going to happen next. Um, it's true that the Supreme Court's decision is very narrow, and it's very um, focused on procedure and leaves open the door for the administration to attempt to rescind the program again. So um, that's very unfortunate um, and, you know, they could try to basically follow the court's instructions and take into consideration, um, you know, the, the various factors that they um, omitted um, or neglected to consider before. For example, um, considering um, the reliance interests and what that means is basically, you know, looking at how, um, DACA recipients, their families, their communities have relied on this program for the past eight years, what impact it would have on them, on the economy, on our society in general to rescind the program. That would take time for them to do properly. Um, the other thing to consider is, you know, whether there is an alternative to um, completely rescinding the program. You know, the court focused a lot on this question of forbearance. Could you allow um, uh, folks to keep essentially the deferred action, not be removed, but not qualify for, for any benefits. Um, and so, you know, they, they could decide, look, let's just go through this process, maybe in a, in a superficial way, but at least sort of go through, you know, um, the analysis and then issue a new memo 
in a couple of months. Um, I don't know if they want to go through that process. I think that's going to be a political calculation that they need to make. Um, you know, public opinion supports the DACA program. Um, you know, there we have an election obviously this year, and so I think while the opinion is um, not everything that we wanted, it's limited in a lot of ways. Um, I think that you know it's still a victory, and um, it, it it still makes it very difficult for Trump to just go ahead and um, rescind the program in in a swift manner in the way in which I think he and his and his administration would like to do. I think there are still some real limitations, and whatever they do, I think we're also going to end up in court again, hopefully in favorable courts where we could <laughs> get another preliminary injunction. So there's a whole process, right? I'm not sure if they want to go through that at least not before, um, or at least before the election. Um, and then after that, I mean, obviously that's, you know, we, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but I think um, it's, you know, it's unfortunate that they can try to rescind it again. But again, I think there are um, many reasons why they may not, but we will see. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that assessment. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh and his dissent uh, suggests that, um, well, the majority refused to consider the second of the two memos. So the first memo that justified the rescission was the one issued by um, then Acting Secretary Elaine Duke. And then uh, there were some shortcomings there, um, some, some, some gaps, and then those gaps were filled by a second memo by um, then Secretary uh, Christine Nielsen. Um, but the majority just refused to consider the second memo for uh, you know, kind of this um, obscure administrative law uh, reason. Um, I mean, something that I care about for the listeners is just uh, because it seems like a classic post hoc rationalization. You can't really trust someone after the fact justifying these um, uh, actions nine months later when you know things have shifted. And Justice Kavanaugh seems to think that all the all the administration needs to do is just um, you know rescind the rescission order and then issue a new one and just cut and paste. The language from the Nielsen memo, and I gotta say, as an administrative action, that that seems that seems right. I mean, maybe they'd have to do a little bit more to address this opinion. But um, the larger point is, I think, what you said is that politically, I'm not sure that's something that the administration really wants to engage in. Uh, but to me, the larger takeaway is that kind of amazing durability of a decision of this program that began eight years ago. Like, I, I again, like. Aside from the sort of where were you when this opinion came down, I, this is also kind of like, well, where were you when the program was announced? And I remember, you know, exactly where I was, you know, at a conference um, in Chicago that had to do with immigration law, and everyone just sort of stopped trying to review this thing. It seemed so interesting and novel, uh, but it also seemed like, again, flimsy in the sense that, of course, what the executive give it, they can take away. Uh, and yet here we are eight years later, having gone to the Supreme Court, um, you know, the sort of knocked on the Supreme Court's door with the DAPA litigation, and then now here we are with this, and the program is still standing. Uh, I mean, that, that, that for me, just as, as, a, as a scholar, that's perhaps one of the most interesting things, something that's, something whose legality uh, is up in the air and still hasn't really been answered by the court is something that's still relevant in changing lives and maybe won't ever be, I mean, won't be shifted at least for the next few months. So anyway, that, that's, if, if there's anything that's remarkable for me, it's, it's sort of that as a, as a legal scholar. Um, okay, I know we're, we're getting um, short on time. Uh, I, I just want to maybe zoom out a little bit um, and talk a little bit about what this case tells us about the Trump administration's approach to um, 
you know, law enforcement regulation generally. I mean, is there any kind of pattern that we can discern from their approach to this? Monica, maybe we'll start with you and then Viri, we can, you can weigh in after that. So I think with this decision, um, or the, the, are you asking about the rescission decision or the Supreme Court decision? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, the, the attempt to, the, the Trump administration's attempt to rescind DACA and just sort of like, if we can extrapolate a larger uh, set of patterns from this administration when it comes to immigration. I think I know what you're going to say, or at least yeah. something, but yeah, I, no, I, I, think, I want to right. give it to you. <laughs> I think we all know this is a very uh, sloppy administration that likes to cut corners. Um, and, you know, Justice Roberts recognized that in, in his decision um, that, you know, they have a very um, aggressive policy towards immigrants, as we've seen, as we know from what they've done at the border, how they've separated families. This is, um, I should say, inhumane, not just aggressive. And so they will do what they want to do um, without necessarily following the law. Um, I think that's what we've seen um, in, in the past several years. And maybe that's, um, I don't know if that's considered an extreme position, but I, I feel like this decision shows that, you know, they, they, pretextually terminated the program. I think that there are very valid um, equal protection issues here. Um, there is evidence of discriminatory intent and animus towards particular communities, um, but also just the process, they're, they're sloppy um, and they are uh, very mission um, ends oriented <laughs> and um, they won't always follow the rules. And I think Justice Roberts um, join the more liberal wing of the court um, in this decision because of that. I think he finds that offensive, that they are not willing to do what is required under the law um, to, um, you know, support their, their policy position. You know, you know, just one quick point on about that. So I agree with everything you said, and, and perhaps the, the key word for me when you were talking was the word they, because this is a great reminder that the president or the executive rather is a they not an it that you do of course have the president but of course you do have other people involved like Stephen Miller like uh, you know Jeff Sessions who's no longer there like Ivanka Trump and everyone has their own agenda and everyone prioritizes immigration differently and when you have a president who maybe hasn't quite um, decided how he feels about immigration enforcement I think that aside from wanting to satisfy his base you get this kind of policy making, right? You get this hodgepodge thing, patchwork, two steps forward, one step back, one step forward, two steps back, kid that's in the cages, public statements in defense of DACA. So the whole thing is kind of a mishmash. Um, and of course, cruelty runs through it. But again, it's always hard to pinpoint whether the cruelty is because they just don't care about um, immigrants and people of color or because they're incompetent. Uh, you know, from the perspective of people who are targeted, it maybe doesn't even matter because all of this is a part of the same sort of project that is, is really dehumanizing. But yeah, I, I, I just, I really love that because I just think that there's so many people involved in this project um, that makes it really and, hard. And Stephen, I, I worked at the Justice Department during the Obama administration and, and saw firsthand how um, time consuming and involved it is to come to any sort of yeah. policy legal decision, right? It always takes, um, a ton of 
um, interagency um, meetings and, and discussions, and there's, you know, um, there are interactions with the White House regularly, and there's, there's always a process, and there are experts within these agencies that know what that process is, typically. Um, and you, you follow that process before reaching any type of consequential decision like this. It's clear from, you know, what happened here in DACA that that's not what they did, right? They decided they wanted to end this program, and then they did what Robert said. They cut corners, and that's why um, their decision was invalidated. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, that, now we're just, now I'm just ranting, but I just, you know, uh, this is an administration that, that took three tries to write a travel ban. I mean, if you're going to be racist and xenophobic, just get it right the first time. I mean, why, why the three different, the three different ones? Um, and but of course, by the time the third travel ban came out, you had a couple of non-Muslim countries worked in there, like North Korea and Venezuela. It's like, oh, see, that's it's not it's not racial animus at all. It just, but, but why the three times? Just just start with that if that's your agenda. Um, anyway, sorry, Viri. Uh, what about you? It, again, like. Uh, I know you're sort of at the start of your legal career, but you've read lots of cases. You've been studying uh, this administration. Um, you know, what can you extrapolate from from the DACA rescission uh, policy about this administration? I, I I have a really hard time with um, from a logical perspective understanding why if the the system can work to their advantage, why they don't just do that. And I think so much of it is to appease their base. Um, which is a really weird thing for me sometimes that like they could appease their base, their base by um, doing it right the first time, but I think that would take time and that wouldn't seem as aggressive or as radical or as innovative. It would, it, it would take time, it would take years, it would take months. And I think so much of the way they do things is to make sure that they're able to go to rallies, um, well, Trump and, and, but others as well, and say, look, we just did it because we wanted to. Um, even though that might, might backfire on them. Um, and while I'm grateful that at the, at the end, those decisions um, are reviewed and, and, and um, they have to do it over, I, I think it also makes people, um, it fosters a lot of hate and it fosters a lot of quick hate. Um, so that's, that's the negative of, of, I think, one of the many negatives of their their lack of following the law, but I, I do think it makes people think that they can just do things against immigrants, against people of color in their daily lives without following the law, without following even just like etiquette. Um, and I think I, I stay away from comments around DACA um, news, but the, the ones that I've seen are really, they're really personal. They're really, um, they're really hateful as I mm. expect them to be, but they're, I feel like they're even more amped up by this administration and the way they do things. Yeah, um, thanks for that. Uh, so I'm, I'm looking at the time and, um, you know, I think we have time for just one last question. I just wanted to give you guys a chance to just offer any kind of concluding thoughts you have in terms of, um, you know, what this, uh, this Supreme Court decision means to you and, and how you hope um, we can use this to, uh, expand and build, uh, you know, the array of rights and interests um, that are tied up in the lives of immigrants. But Monica, would you like to start us off? Sure. I think um, for me, I think a lot about resistance and just continuing the fight because 
while the Supreme Court um, ruled favorably here, again, it was a very narrow decision, um, the battle to maintain the DACA program and ultimately to get Congress to pass some permanent legislation that protects not just dreamers, but their, their families, their parents, their siblings. That is, you know, we've, we've got to continue the fight for that larger, um, more permanent solution. Um, you know, the Supreme Court yesterday issued a terrible decision on, on asylum. Um, oh, so it's yeah, not like terrible. the Supreme Court is, you know, friendly to immigrants. I think that this was a very unique case um, with very unique facts, obviously. Um, again, a very um, sloppy administration. I think, you know, um, again, very happy for the result, but the, the struggle continues, the fight continues. And I think, you know, lawyers, we play a very critical role, but we are, um, you know, we're, we, we, can, we can help sort of deter certain things, limit certain things, push for certain things. But ultimately, this is, um, this is about fighting on a broader level. And it's really about, you know, the, I mean, the dreamers have been fighting for this for much longer <laughs> than the DACA program has been around. And so just learning from them, being inspired by them to continue this fight and to um, broaden it so that more people um, have the opportunity to live here. Um, free of, of, of the fear of deportation. Fiery, how about you? I think that, so when the decision came down, one of the first, um, after the panic, I, I just kept thinking of every DACA recipient I've met and being involved in the case, but also being involved in immigration in general, I've met a lot of them. Um, and I have family members, I have best friends who are DACA recipients. But I had recently met someone whose um, work authorization expired and had just turned in her application. So reading the decision really brought it home that she would be able to renew and would be safe for two more years. Um, and I think it's really important to think about those personal stories. Um, right now, USCIS is about like says they're broke and they're furloughing a bunch of employees. So like those have real consequences. Um, I mean, for delay for people, longer wait times for naturalization, for feeling safe in this country. So I think while it was a joyous moment, it is also, I'm really grateful that it allows so many of us to keep fighting safely, that it allows so many of us to focus our energies not on ourselves, but on our parents and our family members, our friends who are in a much more precarious situation than we are. Yeah, on that last point, that's, that's another thing. When I feel cynical, I, I, I feel like well, why wouldn't the administration want DACA to proceed? It's a moneymaker for them. I mean, USCIS is staying afloat uh, on account of the exorbitant fees that DACA applicants have to submit along with their applications. So like, uh, I don't know, maybe people are getting furloughed right now, but this is gonna help them stay afloat. They don't, they don't have to furlough anyone if they just accept DACA applications. I, I, again, like, it's not because it's the right thing to do, it's because it's profitable or sustainable. Um, which actually is, is actually uh, the, the biggest takeaway I've had from this case is I think about um, teaching immigration. I'm teaching immigration law and administrative law next year both. And for me, the biggest takeaway for me as, as, a, as a teacher is uh, victory doesn't always look the way you want it to look. So you had a certain desired outcome, which is preventing the Trump administration from rescinding this program, at least for today. Um, ideally, the outcome and the reasoning maps onto your own experiences, but we talked about how 
earlier, the ideal vehicle for that would have been equal protection, but of course that just didn't happen. Only Sotomayor was willing to go there. Um, so you're left with sort of arbitrary and capricious review, which is really you know, an odd and peculiar phrase, but I, I just want to say this to you know, organizers and people engaged in the resistance who want to be lawyers. I understand that arbitrary and capricious is never going to bring people to the streets. I realize it's never going to be a placard, but that is a legal concept that allays human suffering. In other words, like the reason why we have that is that when presidents come in and they change political parties, change can happen, but it has to happen slowly because there are reliant interests tied up. People um, expect certain benefits. They need certain things to you know, survive and go through their daily lives. And when you change that, when you unsettle that, you create suffering. Um, and that's effectively what arbitrary and capricious tries to deny. Like, of course, you know, suffering is a bad thing, but you have to weigh it against all these other benefits. So let's not do this without at least a little bit of self-reflection. I mean, again, I just I explain this that administrative laws may be a class that the most important class that uh, advocates um, need to take but don't realize. And this is a great reason that, again, maybe you don't feel completely satisfied with the outcome. Uh, on the other hand, this is one of those tools that is going to be very useful for you as you're trying to thwart the efforts of, of uh, immigration officials. Okay, uh, thank you for taking the time out of your very uh, busy schedule to talk about uh, this case. Um, I think that I, I learned a lot. I couldn't imagine two better people to talk to about, about this opinion you two. Uh, I'm grateful for all that you guys have done, and I hope that you know, we can talk again soon. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Vidi. Thanks, guys. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.